Hi there, David Bush here. Welcome back to Bush History. Today we're going to be taking a look at the Obama administration, but before we get there, a bit of an advertisement. You can get additional information on all of my presentations at www.bushhistory.net, and you can also find me on iTunes. Just look under Bush History, and there's a uh, quite a few podcasts on different aspects of American history. But nevertheless, today let's take a look at the Obama administration. So we have the Obama administration, 2009 to 2017, it's important to remember, presidents are elected in even years and serve in odd years. So we are now, oh, about two years after President Obama left office. I figured we'd give some time to reflect on his administration, and now let's take a look if we can. So here we go. Barack Obama, the 44th president of the United States. He's born in 1961, and his term of office 2009 to 2017. A quote, change will not come if we wait for some other person or some other time. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We are the change that we seek. So let's take a look and see what he's talking about exactly. In 2009, we are in the middle of the Great Recession, the worst financial disaster the United States had faced since the Great Depression. And it was an ugly time for sure. Homes are being foreclosed on left and right. Big Wall Street companies are going out of business. There's a cry for the government to do something. It's the waning days of the Bush administration in 2008 heading into 2009. And the economy is in free fall. And this is the America that Barack Obama is going to inherit. Investment houses and banks were failing, people were losing their jobs, and woe is me, the government has to do something. The only comparison we have is the Roosevelt administration during the Great Depression. And there's an interesting cartoon about this. On the left, you see 1935, Franklin Roosevelt and public works programs, people yelling and screaming. It says conservatives underneath it. Generally, there's a lot of federal... Uh, expense involved in social programs. And on the right, we have year 2010. Job creation, temporary jobs, and we have the Tea Party movement and more conservatives screaming and yelling about it. I guess in the end, it, you know, it depends on your point of view. Does the government do something when people are suffering? Or does the government do nothing when people are suffering and hope that it works itself out? So the question is, does Obama deliver on his promises to save the economy? Take a look. This is GDP, gross domestic product, the sum of all goods and services produced in a country over a period of time is the gross domestic product. Well, take a look. Starting in 2003, the red line is rising. We are rising. And in 2007, we hit the apex of the GDP under the George W. Bush administration. And then it falls off drastically in 2008 and into 2009. And then it starts to pick up again starting in 2009. So if you just take a look at GDP, the Obama administration was very successful in getting us out of the Great Recession. But there's always more to consider. The firsts for Barack Obama. First, he's the first African-American president, and they made a very big deal out of that. He's the first president born outside the 48 contiguous states. He was born in Hawaii, and there are some people that believe he wasn't even born in Hawaii. Um, he's the first multiracial president, first president to publicly endorse same-sex marriage, first president to have a Catholic vice president in Joe Biden, first president to appoint a former first lady to the cabinet, 
That'd be Hillary Clinton. And the first president to appoint a Latino American to the Supreme Court, Sonia Sotomayor. His immediate issues. You have the global financial crisis, also known as AKA the Great Recession. We have this shadow banking system, and I have some of these things in red because they require a bit of an explanation. There's the banks that we all know, big signs on streets, big billboards and things like that. And then there's the stuff that's going on underneath those banks, the hidden trading, the wheeling and dealing in back rooms. It was called the shadow banking system. And that banking system, be actually even hard to call it a banking system, was a series of wheeling and dealing, really, more than anything else. But that wasn't subject to federal regulation. And because it wasn't subject to federal regulation, there were a lot of strange things going on with it. There was a sub prime crisis, and those were high-risk mortgage loans. Typically, someone was offered a mortgage, a 30-year mortgage, with a first-year teaser rate, uh, an unrealistically low interest rate that was very affordable. But it would adjust the second year and adjust the third year and adjust the fourth year to the point where it became unmanageable for the borrower. But they got into their house and now they were going to have trouble paying for it. And we can talk all day about whose fault that was, but it did create a huge problem. Investment houses start to fail. They start to fail primarily because the real estate market is going to fail and people are not going to be able to pay back these mortgages. International trade starts to drop because the money supply is drying up. Household debt rises to 120% of disposable income. Disposable income is the money we have to spend after we pay all of our bills. So now we owe more than we actually have available to us. Financial regulations start dipping in the waning days of the Clinton administration, and it's almost the Wild West for financial institutions, very much like the 1920s, frankly. And we have these things called credit default swaps. Remember these uh, high-risk mortgage loans? Well, what would happen was uh, mortgage companies would bundle these various mortgage loans, hundreds, thousands in, in cases, into bonds. And then those bonds would get rated as triple A, and those bonds would be sold to investors. But those bonds weren't paying. And those were credit default swaps. Just take a look. They were swapping the credit into bonds. Mortgages bundled into bonds and sold as investments. So now I have the recession, an ugly inheritance, because Barack Obama did inherit it from George Bush. Important trigger points, if you like. September 15, 2008, Lehman Brothers, a leading Wall Street financial institution for years and years, declares bankruptcy. And that sends the first wave through the financial industry. But that's not enough. The very next day, another important financial group, American International Group on Wall Street, the federal government buys AIG for $85 billion to prevent them from going bankrupt. But when the federal government buys AIG, it also inherits a lot of these subprime mortgages. So now the federal government is controlling these mortgages. The upside is they're not going to foreclose on them. The downside is people are not going to be paying the federal government now. Another day later, September 15th, September 16th, and September 17th. Due to losses from Lehman's bankruptcy, investors fled mutual funds. So now people are pulling money out of these various Wall Street institutions, and now money is starting to dry up. Well, if money's drying up, that's going to uh, impact on trade. It's going to impact on credit. And frankly, it's going to impact on consumer confidence. 
Just a week later, September 26, Washington Mutual declares bankruptcy. Washington Mutual was one of the largest banks in the country and specifically specializing in mortgages. And on September 29, 2008, Congress rejects a Wall Street bailout. Congress was thinking about injecting money into Wall Street to save these banks and to save these investment houses. But there was strong, there was strong impetus and strong desire not to do that. Let them fail. A lot of people cried out, why should we bail out the rich people? So on September 29th, keep track of the date, on September 29th, Congress rejects the bailout and the stock market drops 770 points. It was a huge drop. Now take a look at the timeline again. On September 15th, Lehman Brothers, September 16th, AIG, September 17th. You have people pulling out of mutual funds, September 26th. Washington Mutual declares bankruptcy. And on September 29th, look at this. Wait, 14 days later, two weeks later, Congress says, no, go ahead, fail. But October 3rd, just a few days later, Congress authorizes the $700 billion bailout plan. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it happens during the Bush administration. This is not an Obama administration plan. This is a Bush plan. But uh, Barack Obama and John McCain suspended their campaigns in a show of bipartisan interest and support for bailing out the economy to work with the Bush administration and supported this bailout plan. The unemployment rate rose from 5% in 2008 to 10% by late 2009, so a 100% increase in the unemployment rate in one year. That's incredible. 7 million jobs were, 7 million people, I'm sorry, were unemployed in 2008, 15 million in 2009. A friend of mine has a, a, a bad joke about this. He says, a recession is when your friend loses a job, a depression is when you lose your job. Things were not going well. And then we have a picture here of Barack Obama and George Bush working together to solve this, which is actually, if it had been better times, it would have been cool to see the outgoing president and the incoming president working together. It was still cool to see them working together, but times were really, really tough. When Barack Obama becomes president, Let's take a look at his programs and events specifically unique to the Obama administration. I call it Domestic Programs and Events 1. One of the early things he does in 2009, he sponsors something called the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. It's called the Stimulus Package. And the idea behind this stimulus package was to give a lot of money to states and cities around the country to do immediate shovel-ready jobs. Put people back to work. Shades of the New Deal with the Civilian Conservation Corps. Lots of jobs, very quickly for people. $831 billion. Mixed success. Overall, it did work, but there were people very critical of monitoring where the money was going. The point was to preserve and create jobs, to assist those who were most impacted, to provide investments needed to increase economic efficiency. They wanted to build roads. They wanted to fix bridges. They wanted to do things like that, non-exportable jobs that people could work on immediately. Transportation, environmental protection, monies went to state and local governments to budget and essential services. It saved layoffs in major cities of major city services. It did a lot. It also was going to increase the deficit. Two, very, very controversial was the auto bailout. The three major domestic auto companies, General Motors, Chrysler, and Ford, all three were in trouble. General Motors was bad, Chrysler was worse, 
And Ford, oddly enough, not as bad as either one. So Ford is not going to participate in this auto bailout. They're not going to take any money from the federal government. However, Jim and Chrysler, too, $85 billion went to both companies in stock purchases to prevent the two companies from going out of business, prevent this huge amount of layoffs. I don't know how many people actually work in the automobile industry and all of the related industries. Um, General Motors doesn't make tires, but Goodyear does, as an example. And then it's rubber businesses and the transportation for all of those materials. Prevented bankruptcy, liquidation, and mass layoffs. Three million jobs were estimated to be saved. The United States Treasury became the major shareholder in GM. So now we have the government as the principal shareholder in General Motors. And of course, people are screaming socialism, socialism, socialism. However, if you worked for GM, you were screaming, thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, it depends on where you're standing in the room on these various issues. Chrysler was ultimately bought by Fiat, an Italian company. It was a negotiated deal to help save Chrysler, but Chrysler still took bailout money from the federal government. Both companies had to lower costs and eliminate non-profitable expenses, so they got rid of secondary companies. A good example is General Motors uh, got rid of Saab and Saturn, and ultimately Oldsmobile. They just didn't need them. They were duplicate companies within General Motors, so they got rid of them, and they became leaner and meaner. Pontiac as well. Um, $70.42 billion was ultimately repaid through increased sales. So a lot of the money put into the automobile industry was repaid to the federal government. The final job estimate was 3.57 million jobs were saved. That's quite a few jobs. Now, detractors still said they should have failed, that GM wouldn't have gone out of business, that Toyota would have bought them or Honda would have bought them. We don't know. We don't know. The, the problem is you have that ongoing debate about individual responsibility versus what is the role of government. During the Obama administration, the role of government was to try to save the American economy. Domestic programs, three. The Credit Card Act of 2009 was an attempt to rein in unscrupulous practices by credit card companies in which rates would skyrocket if you didn't pay your bills on time. Uh, the Dodd-Frank Consumer Protection Act established the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and that was all about monitoring how money was lent and what were called predatory lending practices. An example of a predatory lending practice was I go in for a loan, um, car loan, home loan, home improvement loan, whatever it might be. The person lending me the money arguably knows more than I do about how that loan works. He can't take advantage of me. That's the bottom line. The people who know more could not take advantage of the people who knew less, which had been a big problem going into the Great Recession. The 2010 Tax Relief Act extended Bush tax cuts George W. Bush tax cuts that go back to 2001, because it's not a good idea to raise taxes when the economy is faltering, so they extended those. And the Budget Control Act of 2011, now understand, what's going on here is a huge increase in federal spending. You can't keep that up. Yes, yes, we're using a fire hose to put out a fire, but when the fire is out, you need to turn the fire hose off. You know, the comparison there is we're using a lot of federal money, a lot of borrowing to try to save the American economy. But once the economy starts to recover, 
you have to back off on that federal spending. You just can't keep it up. So that's the Budget Control Act of 2011. And it essentially says that if Congress cannot reach a decision and a deal by 2013 to rein in spending and control the economy better, something called sequestration is going to begin in 2013. And that's going to be mandatory budget cuts of a variety of federal services and services by local governments as well as receiving federal money. Domestic programs and events, four. Arguably the best known of all of Obama's programs and President Obama's programs is the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act of 2010, also known as Obamacare. Countries around the world have national health care systems. We are the only developed nation without an integrated national health care system for our entire population. We do have something for the very poor, it's called Medicaid. We do have something for the elderly, it's called Medicare. But we don't have something for the rest of the population. And medical insurance is incredibly expensive. And that was the point of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, to provide an umbrella of health insurance services for the entire nation, a step in the direction of socialized, single-payer medicine. We didn't get all the way there, but it's a step in that direction. So, And some of the real attractive parts of this. Health care cannot be denied for pre-existing conditions. If you're a diabetic and you apply, apply for health insurance, they can't turn you down. No lifetime caps. So staying, uh, staying with the diabetic as an example, if, that, if the person who's diabetic, if it's me for example, if I'm diabetic and I reach a $100,000 insurance payment in my lifetime, the insurance company can't turn me off. They do need to keep providing care for me. Extension of health care to adult children to age 26. Very popular. A lot of uh, students leaving high school and college didn't have health care before. They aged out of parent plans, parents who had health care through their jobs, and they didn't have anything. And obviously, it makes them very vulnerable. So what this does is it provides an extension of the parents' health care, if it's provided through their jobs or their insurance plans, to the age of 26 for those grown children. At 26, they have to get their own health insurance at that point, but it extends the family coverage. It limits the annual out-of-pocket expense. There's going to be a cap of what you actually have to pay out of your pocket. They provide the state private insurance pools, allowing you choice as to who you're going to buy your insurance from. Medicare was expanded at state government's requests around the country, and everyone pays into the system. It was a penalty if you didn't pay into the system, and that occurred at income tax time. People love it or people hate it. As time has gone on, and we are now in 2018, there are more people who appreciate Obamacare than people who wish it would go away. There are problems with the system. Costs are rising. However, it is providing a level of health insurance for people that was not present before. DACA, highly controversial. The Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, 2012. If someone entered the United States illegally, let's say in 2005, meaning they came across the border or they emigrated into the country by sneaking into the country without doing the proper immigration paperwork, they're technically here illegally. But now they bring their children with them. So the child is nine years old. Child has no decision making there. Child comes 
where the parent takes them. What happens when that child becomes an adult? Are they automatically deported from a nation that they now believe is home? That's what DACA is all about, deferred action for childhood arrivals. It allows children who were brought into the country when their parents came in illegally to stay in the country on, an, on a two-year renewal plan while they work towards citizenship. Now we have the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act of 2009. Now you would think in 2009 women and men would be on pay parity for the same jobs. Not so. In 2018, still not true. There is still a notable difference between the amount that men get paid and women get paid for the same job. I do think it's about 80% for a woman of what a man makes in the same job at this point. It has improved. I'd have to look up that number to be more exact, but I think that's about where it is. Then a Clinton-era program called the Don't Ask, Don't Tell Act. Um, when President Clinton was in office and there was a huge debate going on about can um, gay people serve in the military openly, well, the military policy is that they couldn't. So during the Clinton administration, a policy was enacted called don't ask, don't tell, meaning superiors can't ask your sexual orientation and you cannot tell people your sexual orientation. So it guaranteed your privacy, but did not really allow you to live the lifestyle to which you should be allowed to live. Well, that is repealed in 2010 and allows um, openly gay people to serve in the military. The Patriot Act is extended from 2011 to 2015. The Patriot Act, of course, is a uh, George W. Bush administration anti-terrorist program that gives the government extended reach to look into people's private affairs in an attempt to quell acts of terrorism. And then it's replaced in 2015 by the USA Freedom Act, similar to the, US, the USA Patriot Act, but it put some tighter controls on how data could be used and how data could be collected from private citizens, once again, to quell terrorism. Supreme Court under Barack Obama. Barack Obama had three positions to fill in the Supreme Court. He was able to do two. Sonia Sotomayor in 2009 and Elena Kagan in 2010. And then when Anton Scalia died in the last year of Barack Obama's administration, he appointed Merrick Garland. The Senate, led by Mitch McConnell at the time, refused to even listen to Merrick Garland and grant him a hearing. Highly controversial because the Supreme Court had a vacant seat for over a year the Senate, Mitch McConnell specifically, claimed that the next president, whoever won the 2016 election, should be able to name the next Supreme Court judge as opposed to the outgoing president. Very controversial, and oddly enough, we're seeing some of that politics play out right now. Because as I am making this video, we are in the middle of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. And boy, is that explosive right now, for sure. So he did not get the Merrick Garland seat, Merrick Garland was never confirmed and there were never any hearings. And the debate was, the, and it says, uh, you have the political cartoon here and it says vacancy, constitution, schmanstitution, Obama should let the next president nominate, nominate Scalia's replacement. President is president throughout his entire term. You can't take his power to appoint a Supreme Court justice away with a year to go on his term. Supreme Court has the responsibility to advise and consent. So they never granted Merrick Garland a hearing, and that's coming back to rue them right now in this 
great Kavanaugh debate him certainly is wrapped up in part of that. Now we go to international programs and events under Barack Obama. Free trade agreements. We established United States Columbia Free Trade Agreement. It's actually a Bush era agreement that's implemented in 2012. Panama, another free trade agreement with Panama, Panama in 2012. South Korea, another Bush era agreement that's implemented in 2012. And the Trans-Pacific Partnership, arguably the most controversial of the international trade agreements, um, it was signed but never ratified by the Senate and withdrawn by President Trump in 2017. President Obama was a globalist. He believed in global trade and global cooperation. There are people who do not share that view, and that's fine, different opinions, but nevertheless, these are his international programs. Again, United States Columbia Free Trade Agreement, Panama uh, Free Trade Agreement, South Korea Agreement, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. We also have START. START is the Strategic Reduction of Nuclear Testing and Programs. It's a new nuclear reductions with Russia in 2010. It's an agreement with Vladimir Putin. We have the Paris Climate Change Agreement in 2015, uh, huge international agreement to reduce carbon emissions. And of course, the United States is a principal player in the amount of carbon emissions. Then we have the ongoing issue in Iraq. We're going to take troops out. We're going to put troops back in. We find out that the government of Iraq and the military of Iraq is really not able to support maintaining order in Iraq, so troops come in and out during the Obama administration, and Afghanistan is a similar play, pretty much. The war in Afghanistan has been going on since 2001. We withdrew troops in 2014. We had to put troops back in in 2015. It continues to be a quagmire. They call Afghanistan the death of empires, or the graveyard of empires, actually, more importantly. No one has ever succeeded in Afghanistan. There's no reason to believe that we're going to change that. We got Osama bin Laden in 2011. The Obama administration ultimately authorized a raid that caught and killed Osama bin Laden in 2011, and that took 10 years, obviously, from 2001 to get him. We normalized relations in Cuba in 2014. That was a long time in coming. Uh, there's been some pullback under the, uh, the Trump administration, but we still have normalized relations with Cuba, and people are able to travel to and from Cuba. Uh, ISIS rose in 2014 amongst the civil war or the revolution in Syria. It depends on how you want to term it. And then we have the Iran Agreement in 2015. The Iran Agreement basically allows Iran to have access to Iranian funds that are held in American banks going all the way back to the 1979 siege in Tehran. Well, we froze those assets when Iranian, uh, Iranian relations went south, so to speak. And we agreed to unfreeze those assets in 2015 if Iran would agree to turn around and stop processing materials for nuclear weapons and stop their nuclear weapons program. Iran agreed, so there was a crack in the ice, so to speak, in 2015 with Iran. And countries in Europe signed on to it as well. Again, the Trump administration does not think it was a great deal, and they have unraveled that deal between the United States and Iran. European countries are still conforming to that deal, and Iran so far is still holding to their aspect and their um, agreements that were part of that deal. President Obama faced significant opposition 
among the opposition party, and the opposition party was the Republicans. Obama rides into the presidency on a wave of optimism and public support following the 2008 election. Well, most of that support was from the liberal side of the aisle and certainly Democrats. In January of 2009, January 27, 2009, right after Inauguration Day, House Speaker John Boehner instructs Republicans to resist the Obama agenda. He does not want Obama to get his programs through. Here's an exact quote. We're going to do everything, and I mean everything we can to do to kill it. Stop it, slow it down, whatever we can, and that's John Boehner. Again, an exact quote. We're going to do everything, and I mean everything we can do to kill it, stop it, slow it down, whatever we can. And that's John Boehner. And a second quote. The single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one-term president. And Mitch McConnell said that in 2010. So here you have the Speaker of the House and Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, basically telling all Republicans to resist the Obama agenda. All of this is going to be a problem for President Obama, a significant problem, because in 2010, the House of Representatives goes Republican, and in 2014, the Senate goes Republican. So for the last two years of the Obama presidency, he's going to deal with a legislative branch that's dominated by the opposition party. And here you have John Boehner and Mitch McConnell. So now we go a little further, and in 2010, you see the Republicans win the House of Representatives, just as I said a second ago, and in 2014, the Republicans win the Senate. So now, President Obama is facing a hostile legislative branch to his agenda. There's significant opposition to the Affordable Care Act, immigration, budgets, Syria, Iran, all of those things, the Republicans are now going to take up and battle against Barack Obama. So what a president does when he has a legislative branch that he has difficulty working with, he issues a lot of executive orders. And that's exactly what President Obama is going to do. He's going to start issuing executive orders. And DACA is an example of an executive order. The problem with executive orders is they may, they may function as law, but they're only in place until the next administration decides to change them. They are not law. They are directives. And that's the difference. The Senate then blocks the nomination of Merrick Garland in 2016, so the Republicans have done a pretty good job in the last couple of years of the Obama administration of trying to stop Barack Obama's agenda. And political cartoon here shows Barack Obama putting his head in the mouth of Iran, and that's the way the Republicans viewed the Iranian deal. So in summary, health care, the Affordable Care Act, over 20 million have gained insurance since 2011. That is a significant amount of people that have insurance now that did not have it in 2011. The environment and the Paris Climate Change Agreement, we joined 185 countries around the world to help reduce greenhouse gases. As I said, we have withdrawn from the agreement, but the rest of the countries in the world have not. And we don't fully withdraw until 2020, so we can still change our position on that. The Trans-Pacific Partnership has failed. We are not part of it. But again, we can always rejoin those things. And the Iran Nuclear Pact. We are arguing with Iran on the international stage on an almost daily level, daily basis, I should say, it seems. We'll see where that goes. There's a um, 
a link here to a BBC news story about the Obama administration. You may want to take a look. It's kind of a, a summary to it. Now, by the numbers, in 2009, unemployment was 10%. That's the first year of the Barack Obama administration. In 2017, last year, this is the beginning of the Trump administration, it's 4%. So unemployment drops by 6%. The deficit in 2010, following all of the stimulus programs and ideas, the deficit is $1.3 trillion. It's a lot of money. But in 2017, when President Obama leaves, it's $666 billion, essentially cut in half. So deficit decreases. Now, in 2018, it's $1 trillion, not based on federal spending for programs, but based on tax cuts. So we're taking in less money, and we're not necessarily spending a lot more money, we're just taking in less money. The debt in 2009 was $11 billion, the first year of the Obama administration. In the end of 2016, the last full year of the Obama administration, it was $19 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, so the debt rose significantly under President Obama. And economic growth throughout the Obama administration was 2 to 4%. 4% is really good. 2% is slowly growing, but it's not recession-based either. Unemployment drops throughout the entire Obama administration, and when President Obama leaves off in January of 2017, he is passing off a fairly healthy economy to President Trump. Now, here it is in the, the summer of 2018, and the economy is roaring along. There have been significant tax cuts, which has basically thrown more money into circulation, and time will tell how this is all going to work out. So that's a look at the Obama administration. You could say, uh, economically, the Obama years were pretty successful for the United States. Internationally, we gained a lot of respect under the Obama administration. We signed a lot of agreements. Some of those agreements have been turned back under the Trump administration. Time will tell on these things. It's important when you look at a presidential administration to realize it's hard to judge it in the moment. Certainly, we are embroiled in turmoil in 2018, halfway through the Trump administration. Time will tell how this all turns out. We are a divided nation. We probably have always been that way. Remember, when the Constitution was ratified, you were the Federalist versus the Anti-Federalist, and the debate has always been federal power and individual responsibilities. So, for now, I am David Bush, and this is Bush History. Visit my website, www.bushhistory.net. And uh, I'll see you again. Thanks for watching.